No single incident. If the single incident of my friend being murdered in the street less than 24 hours since I had last seen her didn't stop me. Joe Cox. Yeah, Joe. I, I find it hard to imagine a benchmark higher than that. Um, would you put no, your life on the line, though? You would you die for what you're the doing? The thing is, yeah, yes, I would, but not out of choice. I would never choose to die or put my family in the line of fire. I would never choose it. But what I know from working in domestic violence services is that if somebody attacks me, it's not something I chose. It, it isn't me choosing it. And I think my children are safer in a world where people are willing to speak up. Hello and welcome to the Women of the Future podcast, a podcast made in collaboration with the Women of the Future programme, a platform built to unlock a culture of kindness and collaboration among leaders, as well as support and celebrate the successes of women. I'm Kim Rowell and I won the media category at their awards in 2018 in recognition of my continued work as a commissioner, producer and children's author, particularly within the mental health remit. I'll be talking to my guests on this podcast about their careers, who or what gave them their first big break, their successes, failures and inspirations along the way, and how they came to be a part of the Women of the Future Network. Jess Phillips is a British Labour Party politician, serving as Member of Parliament for Birmingham Yardley since the 2015 general election. Currently Shadow Minister for Domestic Violence and Safeguarding, Jess was also a candidate for leader of the Labour Party in the 2020 leadership election. No surprise, perhaps, hailing from a politically active family and proclaiming her childhood ambition was to become Prime Minister. Citing it as the single most important job she ever had, before her career in politics, Jess was employed at Women's Aid a charity whose aim it is to end domestic violence against women and children, working her way up to become business development manager. Famed for speaking her mind and an author of two books, Every Woman, One Woman's Truth About Speaking the Truth, and Truth to Power, Seven Ways to Call Time on BS, in response to the murder of her friend, Labour MP Joe Cox, in June 2016, just stated, it makes me want to fight harder. I come from a very, very big family. We weren't just a big family of, like, I've got three brothers and they're a lot older than me. Uh, Two of them are a lot older than me. We're in sections with a gap of 10 years, the bigs and the littles. Um, And so also their girlfriends, their partners would often come and live with us. But also uh, my grandfather, who was a, I mean, the idea that at the moment that we've seen politics of sort of rampant socialism doesn't come close to what my Uh, my granddad lived with us from when I was about two years old to help with childcare and my parents also long before all any sort of proper checks and things were done we had quite a lot of people who came and lived in our house usually they'd been friends of my brothers who had come from domestic violence backgrounds or had for one reason or another strained relationships with their own family so we, we had Some people would come for months, some people would live with us for years, people who were going through divorces at my parents' work. It was a bit like living in a big refuge and occasionally you'd get your own bedroom for a couple of months and then somebody would need it and you'd end up back in with your section of brother. So yeah, I come from like a very big communal 
takes a village to raise a child sort of background and also it's a bit like bread the tv program bread because <laughs> yeah. it's a bit like that because even if you didn't live in the house like all of like you know I, I i don't live more than a mile away from most of the people in my family now and it was the same then my grandparents and everybody was always near why do you think it was a kind of safe house was it just your parents approach to life in yeah, general yeah, it was my parents' approach to life, but also my parents were socialists in a practical sense, not an ideological sense. And they didn't believe that you were lucky to be born into a certain family. They believed that you had to try and make sure that that was the case for everybody. And they had both grown up in quite sad circumstances, although they would both tell you they had happy childhoods. But my father's dad died before my dad was born. And he was raised by three very strong matriarchal women, his auntie, his mum and his grandma, in a sort of world where all the men in their family had been murdered in the war or like, you know, terrible things had happened. And my mum came from a 1950s divorced home, which was totally shameful at the time. And she didn't tell anybody. And it was terrible secret and terrible shame. But they definitely came from a place where on your street, you look after your community and everybody looks after everybody else. And so as they sort of raised their own family and we were always part of the Labour Party, always part of like some group, whether it was CND or the Labour Party or the Women's Liberation Movement. And we, I went to Women's Liberation Playgroup. You're always bigger than the sum of your parts. Like, you know, there was always you, you always needed help from someone else and you should always offer it. So. Yeah, my parents lived and breathed their socialism rather than just talked about it. Did you enjoy school and uni? Were you a particularly dedicated yeah, student? Yeah, I mean, primary school, I absolutely loved it. I was terribly precocious. Um, <laughs> I was definitely like, you know, I was one of the clever kids in my class. And it, you know, I, I made sure everybody knew about it. I was probably loathsome, if I'm honest. Uh, <laughs> and I was one of only two kids at my primary school that went on to go to the grammar school in Birmingham we still have a grammar school system so I went on to the local grammar school but then I was very very quickly stopped being precocious and started being really naughty uh, and I think that partially that was some of my upbringing my parents hadn't wanted me to go to the grammar school they didn't believe in it but they believed that if you know because I, I was so precocious I loved taking tests so I was like I'm going to take the test and I'm going to smash it turned out that was right and uh, my brothers haven't taken the test but um, I, I started, it was very, it's like an establishment place. And so I started to rail against that establishment quite early on. I didn't like the idea that we were considered to be better than other kids because that's not what I'd been brought up with. And also just, I was just plain naughty as well. I liked boys and smoking bags. What can I say? But I did all right at school. I always did all right. I did perfectly well and I got good A-levels. And then I went to university, which I hated, hated it. Why? I had, well, it was no sort of awakening for me. I went, you know, I'd been going out and being in it, you know, when you're the last of that many kids, I mean, my parents barely knew where I was from the age of about 11. They were just come back for tea if you must sort of thing. And I don't mean that they were in any way neglectful. They weren't at all, but they were very, very encouraging of my independence, but definitely benign neglect if such a thing was possible. So I was, um, I didn't need freedom. I didn't need, you know, what it was like to live on my own. I'd lived with my boyfriend before I went to university anyway. And I hated being away from home. I hated not being amongst my family. And 
yeah, there were, there were moments I enjoyed it, obviously. There were things I did while I was there that I liked, but I, I didn't like I didn't like academia at all. It didn't suit me at all. So after uni, you worked at your parents' events management company. Is that right? Oh, not, not straight away. So, uh, oh gosh. So after uni, I left university when I was 21. And I, had my, I was pregnant with my first baby by the time I was 22. So I think that when I came back from university, I was working in the pub mainly. But then, yeah, I think maybe I was doing a bit of bits and pieces of work for mums. She had been a sort of civil servant in the NHS and then she set up like a sort of events and consultancy thing using her many years of working in the NHS experience. And I worked there on and off as well as working in the pub as well. And then I got pregnant. You moved on to become business manager for Women's Aid. Yes. How would you say, I mean, it's, it's fairly obvious, but your experiences and learnings from that role help shape the work that you still do today? still the single most and will always be the single most important job I ever had in terms of building me into the person that I was going to become because from a policy perspective when you work in a women's aid and I had a number of different jobs before I became the business development manager I started out as like an assistant to the CEO but you interact with every single part of government policy because people's lives are complicated, victims of domestic violence. If only they just stood up and needed one sort of thing. Mm. So I learned about housing and I learned about welfare and I learned about offending behaviour and I learned about the courts and I learned about health and I learned about mental health and I learned about so many different things. And I could have just learned that from just spending the weeks with just one person would have interacted with every single one of those schemes. Um, my husband is showing a builder around the house at the moment. Don't worry. Voice is very loud at the moment. Maybe it's that thing where people are men are talking about what are you having, they having get louder. Done. <laughs> having the and landing really Excellent. Well, why not? Sense. Now's the time, oh, well, right? Yeah. Oh, it's going to be so messy. It's going to be awful. The dust will get um, everywhere. But uh, they are at a safe social distance, as is that's, uh, yeah, the guideline. Of course, that maybe that's why they're shouting. It seems maybe so loud. Could be a very maybe good reason. But I carry so many of the women I met in that organisation, both mm. the women who worked there and the women who we served. I feel like you carry them with you. They're like my pinups, and yeah. there are some who, to other people you know you wouldn't cast a second glance at, and you wouldn't want them necessarily near you because people often want to believe that victims of domestic violence are sort of all angels or well, some of them were really 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 difficult characters who were difficult to help and they're the ones actually who stay with me the most because i was thinking of a young woman i i worked with for many many years and she'd been abused as a child she'd been in and out of the care system she'd been sexually exploited as a, both a child and an adult She'd had domestic violence, she'd had offending behaviour and some homelessness. And she was really hard to help. She was a pain in the arse, if I'm completely honest, in a lot of cases. But every single day she got up. And just that to me, whether she got up and she was relying on substances to get her through mm. the day, whether she got up, I mean, we had to have two of her children removed from her. and it just she 
she is my pinup. She is the thing that inspires me to keep going. Even though I had to tell her off on many more than one occasion and be like, the reason we can't house you, the reason because we can't find some of you to go is because you keep setting light to things. <laughs> you know, it's not, people are not simple, but this young woman who didn't seem to age the entire time, she was always seemed like a child to me. She got up every day, and I think if people like her can get up every day, then you can keep on going, you can keep on fighting when things are really, really hard. Mm. And so people like her are my inspiration. And you're just never, ever, you know, the experience you get working at Women's Aid. Also, because I then went on to become the business development manager, I, I have a deep and meaningful understanding of what is wrong with the way that money works in this system and what does and doesn't work mm. in how patient services and so I think that that has been very very helpful but it just I'll never know camaraderie like working at a women's aid as well I think people think people used to do this space oh gosh that's such hard work yeah and I just think you don't know we have a laugh all the time we're constantly laughing both with the women and the other people who work there and you learn to have terrible gallows humor that if you were to see it on twitter you would I mean you'd, you'd be pilloried <laughs> absolutely pilloried but of course we're all just a load of women working together to try and help people and you're dealing in hope so most of the time you're laughing I mean I never laugh so much I certainly don't laugh as much at Westminster as I did I mean especially because I worked in the black country which when people mimic Birmingham accents uh, on the television often it's they're yeah, actually yeah. Being a very very traditional black country accent like oh well, so I worked in the black country with these women from the black country and some of the patter and the things that they would say were just so hilarious. And because I'm from Birmingham, they considered me to be posh. Um, and they'd say, <laughs> oh, really? they'd, say, they'd say things like, I'm going on holiday this weekend. I say, where are you going? We're going up to Birmingham. And I think, do you think I go, you think I go on holiday every night when I go home from work because I live in Birmingham? I'm like, oh, we're going to see a show. It's like four miles up the road. Like, I, I just... I could, if I could bottle the hilarious women of the black country and just drink them every morning, um, <laughs> life would be better. You would cure coronavirus. My next question is kind of linked to this. And before we get onto your political career, in your book, Truth to Power, the chapters deal with your admiration for people from all walks of life, holding power to account. So whether it's Natasha Elcock, from Grenfell United or Cara Sanquist, who's an abortion rights campaigner. And in your role that you now do, which we'll get onto how you got into doing that, it hasn't always been an easy road for you, has it? I mean, in recent weeks, you've had fake revenge porn, you've had your house broken into. Um, these people are clearly taking umbrage at someone's viewpoint to the mm -hmm. utmost extreme. But can I ask, will it ever get too much for you what's your line because you have a panic uh, alarm by your bed don't you yeah 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 have all of that um no single incident if the single incident of my friend being murdered in the street less than 24 hours since i had last seen her didn't stop me i joe, joe cox yeah joe I, I i find it hard to imagine a benchmark higher than that um would you put no, your life on the line though you would you die for what you're the doing the thing is yeah yes i would but not out of choice i would never choose to die or put my family in the line of fire i would never choose it but what i know from working in domestic violence services is that if somebody attacks me it's not something i chose 
it isn't me choosing it and I think my children are safer in a world where people are willing to speak up and say when things are wrong I think they're safer if I speak up maybe not as individuals but as a collective there is no single incident I can imagine that would stop me even someone trying to hurt me and succeeding in hurting me but not let's say not killing me wouldn't make me stop because it would I I read a brilliant thing the other day that um said I wear your hate like war paint Mm. and it it would make me certain that I had to carry on it might make me made me I was scared no single incident that I can imagine even the worst about my children no single incident would stop me it would drive me it would make me more certain to go on but the accumulation of incidents is what is harder to deal with Mm. so that gets to you so each single thing that happens to me like I'll say it to my husband and he'll be like oh they're they're idiots ignore it sort of thing and that's the way we deal with it on a day-to-day basis and that's absolutely fine and I can live with that it's when it starts to accumulate that it's problematic um do you get scared yeah I'm scared a lot of the time I'm scared a lot of the time and I know that at the moment all the stuff about Dominic Cummings it will hurt me in the long run because whether I said nothing or mm. it wouldn't make, I'm, at, I'm in the status now that it doesn't matter whether I say something or not, people will assume right. <laughs> regardless. So even if I'd never said, well, I think that he should apologize, which is essentially all I haven't even, I haven't called for him to, I'm, I'm not being particularly dramatic about it. I'm saying, I think what he did was wrong. And I think that the justification for doing it was wrong and it's offensive. But even if I said nothing, people would assume that of me, it will increase the risk to me. I'm already seeing an increased risk because right-wing actors will use it against me and when attacked they'll feel they have to react I'm already feeling that I do feel uh, again about individual things I don't feel scared I don't feel scared so tomorrow there's a court case in Birmingham an anti-terror charge against somebody who threatened me I won't say what the details are because it's in the courts so that's tomorrow this morning the police informed me of dna evidence they'd found on a series of harassing letters that i've been receiving over a period of months and that they've found and arrested somebody my house was broken into two weeks ago and that break-in has been the credit for it has been taken by a far-right group who write things about fantasizing about murdering my children and so in the space of four weeks all of those things have happened to me at the very same point that the world's scrutiny on politicians has risen to the point where actually for me now Dominic Cummings the Dominic Cummings story means that actually I you know any slight infraction standing talking to a neighbour at a perfectly safe distance I actually can't even do that at the moment because it will be a breeding frenzy if that looks in a photo like I'm really close to somebody sort of thing it's also sort of imprisoned me a bit further and so this week I have found it a little bit hard Mm. to deal with them all quite stressful but it's usually an accumulation and also probably because I'm going to get my period I mean it could well be that (laughs) I'm only human I mean you know when you're getting your period you can't cope with anything can you like you like you bump you you bump your leg on the, the and you think well that's it I've got my leg on the, the door, world. everything's yeah. the worst, you know, <laughs> so uh, it's, 
it often works in patterns of other yeah. things like if you're really stressed at work if you yeah then you start to not be able to cope with it but no single event will ever stop it how do you manage your own mental health in these situations do you have things poorly you do? <laughs> <laughs> uh, really poorly normally hmm. i have huge amounts of diversionary activities whether that is work I'm, i have six very 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 close girlfriends who live within a mile of my house they're like very very close and uh we all go on holiday we're all meant to be in turkey right now in fact Aww. with our families so they gutted um but um i spend time with them and they are not political particularly and they just they take the piss out of absolutely everything there is nothing these women will not joke about once again if anyone ever saw the whatsapp group I mean, it just literally it, just, <laughs> doesn't bear, it doesn't bear thinking about um they'll always there, be your friends because they know too yeah. much right yeah exactly. <laughs> oh, definitely my god definitely uh they constantly joke about how they're gonna sell stories or pictures of me they constantly <laughs> joke every single time we're on holiday they're like you know oh and the shock MP does this I'm like, um, but I can't see them at the moment and I even if I, I, I went for a walk with one of them and it was lovely but the collective the nature of a collective and a community mm. where we're all in each other's gardens and you know finding that not having that is really really hard it makes dealing with my mental health about the other things really hard because they would essentially they wouldn't they'd go oh you know some of them would be like oh you know they'd all talk about me uh, how they were worried about me behind my back mm. but to my face they'd just be like oh they're assholes and then they'd slag them off and say the worst things about them and then make some joke and then we just you know it's sort of you can cope with it but I haven't got that at the moment and that is definitely really 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 hard I'm I am a community pack animal and it's hard not to so how did you get into politics? I read somewhere that it was your childhood ambition to be prime minister. Yeah, it was my childhood. Like I said, I did start this conversation by saying I was incredibly precocious. <laughs> Self-awareness um, is important. Um, yes, I didn't really get involved in politics. My whole life has been political. Um, my family raised me to believe that the personal is political. My mother was a feminist activist. My father was a peace activist. They were both strong union rights reps and activists that I was brought up in the Labour Party. And I, when I say that, I don't mean like other people are like, oh, you know, we went to the Labour Party meetings. Literally, my childminder and the childcare that was invented by our local Labour Party to help women go back to work in the 1980s. It was every single Christmas, every birthday, every party was the Labour Party. Like that was how we knew people. Yeah. So my whole life has been completely political but I ended up being a poli my parents never even like were officers in the local Labour Party like you know they weren't interested in office like being mm -hmm. councillors or being even the chair of the local constituency Labour Party they, they, they were they were workarounds but the reason I ended up in politics was initially basically I will keep on riding until I get to the bit of the ladder where I get to make the decisions that need to be made about the things that I care about. Mm. And basically people saying no to me is what inspires me in politics. So when I was working at Women's Aid, I was involved in like how the commissioning and the, the funding of services happens at a local level and I didn't like it. So I got onto the council to be the person who made those decisions. And the day I was elected, I was made the victims commissioner for 
Birmingham and so that I was became the, one of the commissioners of deciding on services and what was needed. And then when I realised, because of course we were living through the first years of austerity then, that was in 2011, I realised that I needed to climb up to the next level to be the person who made the decisions. Of course, I'm not yet the person who makes the decisions. I'm the person who tries to make the people who make the decisions make better ones. But that's still slightly further up mm. the uh, ladder. And I will just keep on going until the outcome. Uh, Maria Miller in the second reading of the Domestic Abuse Bill said that I had once said to her, and she, bear in mind she's a Tory, that I would retire when they made it a statutory duty for local authorities to provide refuge accommodation. Hmm. And so now that they've done that, I can I can happily retire. But I can just, you know, I've just found a million other things to be annoyed about. <laughs> so, um, it's totally fine. But that's how I got involved, was I just kept thinking I've got to try and make these decisions be made better. Um, would you, would you still to like that. to be leader of the Labour Party? I don't, I don't so much want to be leader of the Labour Party as I want to be the Prime Minister. Or be in a, I just want to be in a position to have the power to make decisions. What I find absolutely maddening is when ministers and secretaries of state and even the prime minister sit in front of us and say, oh, I think you know, probably the best thing to do is a review. And I just think, oh my God, we're gonna just review this again. We've been reviewing migrant victims of domestic violence for the past five years. And I'm like that. I could have written it on day one. We've saved mm. ourselves a lot of time. However, let's review it again. I just, I hate the idea that they are imbued with so much power and they don't take it. They don't use it because they don't believe in the state. That yeah. They don't believe in pulling those levers to make things change in people's lives. So you'd rather be proactive rather than reactive, right? Yeah. So I want to be in a position to go yes, what is happening here is wrong and this is what we're going to do to change it. Because that's what I did when I was at Women's Aid. I would find, and that's why I became the business development director, because we'd find that loads of the women in refuge had offending behaviour and were in and out of the criminal justice system. So I was like, okay, well, we need a specific service for female women offenders. Mm. So let's set one up. Let's find a way. And that has very much always been the way that I worked. Find a, you know, see a problem. Don't invent a problem where there's not one needed see a problem, try and make it better. And the idea that you could be in a position to do that for the country would be phenomenal. And you do get to do it actually quite a lot. If you're in um, a local council area, especially they say local council area, it sounds sort of like twee when I'm a member of parliament. Birmingham is the biggest city, uh, is the biggest city council in Europe. So it's a pretty big machine with a lot of people that you can help. You know, I was able to say, OK, well, when we're commissioning drug and alcohol services, we're going to have specialist services for victims because they've, they've often been forgotten. And when we're commissioning sexual health services, how about we have specialist sexual violence advisors? And I was able to see gaps and fill them. So actually I had much more power there, really. <laughs> You've got two boys, haven't you? How have you been managing the pandemic? Are you the most brilliant homeschool teacher terrible. Birmingham has ever seen? No, I'm literally <laughs> terrible. My father was a teacher. It's not rubbed off on me, although he never successfully taught me anything. And uh, I don't think you can teach, even if you're a tr trained teacher, I think it's an impossibility to teach your own children. Uh -huh. um, so I gave up pretty much 
day three. Mm. Um, luckily, their school have been sending quite a lot of work. I mean, they get through it quite quickly, I suppose, That's when good. you only have one person in the classroom. Mm. Um, and I, it's the holidays at the moment, so I have been like, yeah, whatever, like, you don't have to do anywhere. We've tried to do other things with them, like teach them other skills. So my husband, it's about programming and building computers, so the kids have been doing some of that. We've been doing quite a lot. I was about to say, oh, I've been teaching them cooking, which sounded like terrible gender roles. And it's also not true. My husband's also been teaching them to cook. Basically, my husband's been doing it is what I'm trying to tell you because I have been at work. Um, but, at least you're honest. Yeah, we've tried to do that sort of stuff with them. Uh, my son is in, a, is in year 10, my eldest son. So he's doing his GCSEs. And I have done some of the trying to help him with the things that I'm good at, like history and English. Uh, I don't understand maths. I don't understand my primary school kids' maths. So I've got an A, GC, I've got a GCSE A in maths. That's very impressive. But yeah, I've got an A star, in fact. And it's a shock to us all when it happened. Uh, <laughs> I, but they don't, they don't do maths. They don't do maths the way that I did it, so I don't understand it. They don't carry the, the one. I just... Yeah, that's weird. They don't weird. carry the number. Mm, don't understand I'm like, that. I can't fathom how you're doing yeah. this if you don't carry the number. Yeah. So... Yeah, there was a meme recently that I saw that was something like another day goes by and I haven't yet used algebra. So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to downplay maths, but yeah. Yeah, I remember once uh, at school saying to my maths teacher, who I loved and who worked so hard to try and help me, um, even though she was very strict and, and on the surface we didn't really get on, but she obviously got me over the line and got me a nice star. But I remember once doing like Pythagoras or trigonometry uh, and saying, when am I ever going to need this? and trying to come up with reasons why I would ever need to crack out the sides of a triangle. And photocopying was yeah. one, I was like, no, you don't need this for photocopying. How you would lean a ladder <laughs> against a wall safely. I was like, I'm going to just do it until it feels safe. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, but yeah, I, I've not used, no. I also, I've been totally lax in that. In the beginning, we were like, in the week, you have to go to bed at the normal time that you would go to bed if we were at school. Totally all gone completely out yeah, of the week. Yeah. None of it's, none of it's held firm. They've basically been on a 10 week holiday. Mm. But how have you managed it being a high profile politician and being a mum? Um, it's all right. Actually, I mean, there's a quite a big. Dis- I live. I don't live in London, which I think helps. It feels like a different skin as I go through Oxfordshire on the way home. Mm. I feel like I literally feel my shoulders dropping and like I'm a different person. And nobody's really that bothered about me around here. Like you know, I've lived in the same bit of Birmingham my whole life, mm. so they're a bit like, yeah, whatever. You think you're so great, you know? There, there's no. Um, so here, you're sort of slightly disconnected from it. So that's good, but. There are moments when it's hard, when people invoke your children or people tell you you shouldn't invoke your children and your experience as a mother, because like I say, politics is personal to me. That annoys me. But mostly they don't give a toss. Mostly they like the upside, like getting to go to Glastonbury and getting to meet famous people. Yeah, Yeah, so my son, he does like some weird, it's not that weird, he does a podcast it's long and rambling um <laughs> and he he had the comedian joe lyson on it this morning so. amazing because he gets to meet people he gets to meet they get to meet people and friends in high uh, places yeah exactly. <laughs> so they quite like the upside of it and my elder son at secondary school has definitely suffered some of the people talking about things about they've seen on the internet my younger son couldn't care less 
they're mostly not interested. Although yesterday we were playing a game. <laughs> we were playing the game. There was a programme run about McDonald's and Burger King and it talked about the McLibel action. And I said, oh, that was Keir Starmer. And they were like, oh gosh, it must be really helpful that he's a lawyer, like a really eminent lawyer when you're talking about the law and things. And I said, it is very helpful. However, every ninth person in parliament isn't a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's not helpful. So, so we played, we played lawyer, no lawyer, and they were naming politicians and you had to say lawyer, no lawyer. There were some we had to look up, we didn't know. Yeah. But they knew like the names of so many politicians. So there is an element where my children are exposed to politics in a way that actually I was as a child. Because my parents were. But my son, Harry, who's 15, referred to Rishi Sunak as my boy Rishi. There you are. <laughs> I was like, what is this? <laughs> What's <laughs> happening? The face of the cabinet. I have got some quick fire questions and then I will let you go, Jess. Um, so the first one is, what would you describe as your greatest success? Oh, God. I... I don't know if it's happened yet. Um, the moments I have felt like doing cartwheels, like I can't believe we did this, was when the government decided that they would have a statutory duty that refuge accommodation had to be provided. When you change the law, mm. when they finally gasp and give in and go, go on then, you can have it. A pretty amazing feeling when you change the law, when it actually changes. That's pretty high up there in my greatest successes, but I should say my kids. <laughs> of course, of course. <laughs> and your greatest failure? Oh, God, there's plenty of those. Um, my greatest failure? I would say my experience trying to look after my brother, who was uh, very had suffered from very, very bad substance misuse problems, I definitely failed at that quite badly. And it's funny how you can fit like you can't teach your own kids. It's much, much harder to disassociate yourself from the reality of vulnerability when it's in mm. your own family. And I don't mean that you are softer. I mean, you're harder. Much, I was much harder mm. on him than uh, I, was, I would be on somebody else's brother in that circumstance. So I think that was a bit, well, he's all right now. So my failings didn't let him down too badly. I feel like that was a bit, that's a bit of a failing in my life. The mantra of women of the future is kindness and collaboration. What does that mean to you in both your personal and professional life? I mean, it is the single most important thing that drives me. If I had to have a tagline or the way my husband always says, the only thing he's trying to do as a parent is to teach the kids, don't be a dick. I think that kindness is underrated and it is the single most important thing just just be kind just be kind to each other mm. and no man is an island and I am in this island world we're having to live in at the moment I am definitely less than the sum of the parts of the people in my life without shadow of a doubt so mm. collaboration even with people you don't like <laughs> is deeply deeply important you know I have to overcome so many personal gripes mm. with people I mean I've sat in meetings with Dominic Cummings working together with people will always improve the outcome and that's all that matters fundamentally that is all I'm very Machiavellian in that the ends justify the means mm. is there anything that scares you loads I'm terrified all the time I'm scared of being a failure I'm scared of people realizing that 
I'm not as perfect as they think I am, um, even though I say it all the time, that I will disappoint people and I will disappoint the very, very people who put me on a pedestal. And I'm terrified of that because on their behalf, I don't require it, I don't ask for it, but it happens and I'm definitely not perfect. I'm much more scared of failure than I think gets portrayed. I'm terribly scared of that. What if it was all for nothing? What if you lose everything? And my husband always says, we'll be all right, you know, as long as we can all fit on the sofas together, it'll be fine. What's left on your to-do list? Oh, God, so much. (laughs) So much, so many laws to change. So much left to do to improve the lives of vulnerable people in society. I mean, we're not even close. We've got, you know, I could work for the rest of my life and still there would be a thing that I had to do. And that's what I'll do. But also other fun stuff. And it's okay to be, I'm I'm okay with the fact that the job that I do means that I also get to do fun stuff like write books and go on book tours and go and speak to massive audiences. I would like to go to America and be more involved in the politics there. And I would really like to... It's ridiculous, isn't it? I'm sure there's nothing I could do to affect that any change, but I really feel like there could be some change to affect over there. Oh, yes. (laughs) Thank you, Jess. It's been a lot of fun talking to you, so thank you. Thanks. I'll let you go. (laughs) I'm going to go and find out what that builder said. Yeah, good luck. Fingers crossed. (laughs) (laughs) Cheers. Bye. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Women of the Future podcast. If you enjoyed it, please hit the subscribe button. And while you're there, why not give us a rating and review? You know you want to. For more about the Women of the Future Awards, network and initiative, please visit www.womenofthefuture.co.uk. See you soon.